All right, well, my research on the background of Mark, I don't know if this has been brought out, but he was written in the, Mark was written in the context of Nero's rule, where lots of persecution, lots of martyrdom going on. That was what's been brought out. Uh, and he was writing primarily for the Christians in Rome and in Italy. Uh, Mark wanted to encourage the Christians by comparing Christ's sufferings with their sufferings. And so that's kind of a real fast what he's writing at. That's significant because of how the, uh, the very first um, narrative goes. Um, because Mark, what Mark is doing and what I see him doing in chapter 11 is hitting hard the whole issue of genuine faith. Uh, authenticity, having a deep heart love for Jesus, obedience to his teaching, uh, as opposed to fake, external, just a ritual kind of going through the motions, because that will never stand up to persecution. Uh, if you're faking it, if you're going through the motions of Christianity, and you're asked to die for it, you're going to bolt real fast. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's genuine, heartfelt, real, it's like, yeah, I'll die. I'll, I'll go all the way. Um, and so what I, what I want you to do is start thinking about that now. Um, ask yourself, where are you simply going through the motions of religiosity, of churchianity? <laughs> That's a good word. Uh, where are you faking it as opposed to deep, heartfelt <coughs> passion for living for Jesus? You might think, well, I'm not faking it. I'm not faking it at all. Um, I appreciate that, but just think it through. There's times where I have, I have, especially in the morning when I'm reading my Bible and praying, I just feel like, man, alive. Am, am I just faking this whole thing? Am I, is this just, is this real, Jesus? Do I really love you? And, and it, I just sort of start to sort of question a little bit. Now, ultimately, I don't. At the end of the day, I, I, I believe my belief is genuine and heartfelt, but I think there's pockets where maybe we're faking it. And that's what, that's what uh, we're going to see Mark exposing in chapter 11. Um, so start thinking about that right now. But pay attention to it. Um, so uh, we're in chapter 11. Uh, I see five primary sections in the chapter. Uh, I'm going to sneak over into chapter 12 just a little bit, but I won't steal any of Austin's thunder for next week. Um, uh, because I think chapter 12 sort of caps the, what's going on through here. Chapter 11. Uh, we're going to look at each section somewhat on its own, but mostly what I want you to see is the flow. Uh, uh, Jordan, uh, Jordan, what's your name? Jared. Jared forced me into studying this a certain way. Uh, I, I am the kind of person who likes to take three or four verses and just tear them apart. That's my favorite way to study and to teach and to preach. Uh, but uh, Jared insisted I do the whole chapter and see the flow. And so it, I appreciate that because it really forced me to think and study a little bit differently than I normally do. And, and it was really neat. So for our purposes tonight, we're not going to dig into the, the nuts and bolts, the details of individual verses, which just frustrates me no end. And it might frustrate you. But we're going to try to kind of go across the whole chapter. Um, and see how it fits together. I want, to, I want to ask a lot of questions. I want to get some discussion, some interaction. I don't want to just stand up here and talk the whole time. I want you to talk too. Uh, so I hope it's more of a dialogue than a, than a lecture. Now I'm going to use the message for the reading. Um, I'm going to read these various passages as we go along. Uh, familiar with the message? Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Eugene Peterson's translation? 
Uh, I like its blunt language. I think it fits well, especially for Mark. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark is a fast-paced book. <clears throat> I remember studying it uh, back in the King James era, and uh, the, the key word was straightway. Straightway, straightway. Thir 19 times in the book. Uh, ESV has immediately, immediately, 36 times. Uh, and so um, that's, that's Mark, just immediately, immediately, and what the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. Uh, I think it's also, the message is also good for getting the flow rather than the details. Not a great study Bible, but a good reading Bible. So the first section of the book, or of the, of the chapter, is the triumphal entry. What we know uh, stands behind Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus is presenting himself as king to the nation. He's writing in on uh, the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, five days before he's killed. And so I'm going to start reading at 11.1 and read verses 1 through 11. When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany and Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him and we'll return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door at the street corner and untied it. Some of those standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? The disciples replied exactly as Jesus had instructed them, and the people let them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus, spread their coats on it, and he mounted it. The people gave him a wonderful welcome, some throwing their coats in the street, others spreading out rushes that they had cut in the fields. Running ahead and following after, they were calling out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Blessed the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in highest heaven. He entered Jerusalem, then he entered the temple. He looked around, taking it all in. But by now it was late, so he went back to Bethany with the twelve. Interesting phrase there in the last verse. He looked around, taking it all in. He entered the temple, he looked around, took it all in. But we're going to see that a little bit later, how significant that is. So Jesus is presenting himself as king. He, he rides into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. And the people seem to understand this. They're praising him, they're worshiping him, they're throwing their coats down. Uh, but a few days later, this exact same crowd is going to chant, crucify him, <clears throat> crucify him. What changed in four days? What changed? It's something else I want you to think about. We're going to talk about this in a minute, too. But just think, what, what was it in these people that on Sunday they... They worshipped him, and on Friday, they killed him. But first, a couple of things about Mark's account. Um, Jared mentioned that uh, I preached uh, Palm Sunday at Cornerstone, and I used Matthew's version of this text. And in Matthew's version, he quotes Zechariah 9.9. Uh, the triumphal entry was a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in 9.9. Uh, but Mark doesn't quote Zechariah 9. It's left out. So let's think about that, and here's some interaction. Why do you think Mark left out the uh, Zechariah 9.9, but Matthew included it? From what you know about the book. Maybe because if he's talking to Romans and... Um, I don't know, maybe he's just talking to different people. They don't really care about the old, like, what, the prophecy of Zachariah. They wouldn't even know or have reference for it. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't know. 
I can't remember who he's talking to. That's talking a pretty to good Jesus answer for not knowing. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts? We see, I mean, I just noticed we see very little of, relative to Matthew, very little of those Old Testament quotes. Who was Mark written to? Christians, Romans. <coughs> Who's Matthew written to? The Jews. The Jews. So Mark's readers don't care about it being a fulfillment of prophecy because that's not their concern. Bing, 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 so again, for not knowing, you sure get a Bible. <laughs> I think Mark wants to keep the story moving. It's the shortest gospel. It moves the fast, fastest. So he's not going to get bogged down in unnecessary details. And for his readers, they don't care if it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Um, so I think he just skips it. Um, so back to our question. And let's let's throw this out for discussion now. What changed? That the same group of people that worshiped Jesus on Sunday killed him on Friday. What do you think? Don't tell me. So I think it goes back to their under, their understanding of the Messiah as a political uh, leader who is going to overturn um, the rule. Uh, over the, being being ruled, the Jews being ruled over by whoever that would be at the time, um, and then uh, also their understanding. It, it, it seems to be the first time that Jesus calls himself uh, God, that he is, that he refers to himself as God, and there understanding of the Messiah up until that point was not that that God was that the Messiah would be God um, but that they would be two different things and so therefore calling yourself God was the highest form of heresy last week. Okay. I, I like to think of it as like they found out who Jesus really was. Mm-hmm. Meaning that they found out like he was God, or he claimed to be God, but also that he wasn't gonna try to throw a kid oh, really? Like he he basically like gave away all of his cards and they were like, what the heck? Yeah. yeah. He didn't do what they wanted the Messiah to do. And I think a little bit of what Nick was saying earlier that was already present in Matthew 9 was uh, the full authority of Jesus on display and piggybacking off of what was claimed. As I already said, because of that revelation of God and authority, um, means that you have very little. There's no. It's black and white. Either I am committed and fully trust Jesus my whole life, and therefore I need to conform everything to this Messiah, or yeah. I don't really believe this at all. Yeah. yeah. Just think back to what we watched the the, the over the review of um, chapter ten, and the disciples even expected Jesus to be to overthrow Rome. And they thought, I think the, the people in Jerusalem thought, here comes our Messiah, who's going to throw off the, the rule of Rome and conquer. And the disciples were like, I'm going to sit in your left hand and your right hand. That's what they thought was going to happen. And as Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday went on, they realized, he's not going to do that. 
he was not the Jesus they wanted. They really didn't know who he was. Um, they didn't accept him for who he was because he was not who they wanted him to be. They didn't accept him for who he was because he was not who they wanted him to be. So let me ask another question. Has God ever done something in your life that you didn't want him to do? Has he ever not met your expectations or done something differently than you had expected? Today? This week? <laughs> <laughs> An hour? An hour? <laughs> Assuming we could all say yes. You ever read things in the Bible and think, God couldn't have done that, could he? We've been reading through the Old Testament. In the, uh, remember the Amalekites? God told Saul to kill, or Samuel told Saul, go kill the Amalekites. Men, women, children, donkeys, goats, sheep, kill them all. And you read that and go, I don't think God would do that. So when God doesn't meet your expectations when God is not the God you want him to be what do we do with that? change our theology if you have wrong theology <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes we do and people do for yeah, sure. yeah. we do uh, I've heard people say things like my God would never do that Maybe your God wouldn't, but God would. Um, I just just a little aside here. On, on we're going to keep going in in the uh, in the text, but um, I just challenge you: make sure you get to know the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus who you would like him to be. Uh, when Don and I got married, I wanted her to be a certain way. I hoped she would act a certain way. I expected that she would act like my mom in how she cooked and how she cleaned and how she did laundry. I had expectations of her. You guys that are married are grinning already. Um, guess what? It didn't work out that way. <laughs> I had an image of what kind of a wife I wanted her to be based on the image of wife that I had in my head. And the best image I had was my mom. I had to learn who she was, not who I wanted her to be. We've got to learn who Jesus is, not who we want him to be. All right, questions, thoughts, comments? Keep moving. All right, let's keep moving. Second narrative, the unproductive fig tree in 12 through 14. So as they left Bethany the next day, he was hungry. Off in the distance, he saw a fig tree in full leaf. He came up to it, expecting to find something for breakfast, but found nothing but fig leaves. It wasn't yet the season for figs. He addressed the tree. No one is going to eat fruit from you again, ever. And his disciples overheard him. All right, talk about maybe know the Jesus who is and not the Jesus you expect. This is a miracle of destruction. So how does that fit in with your view of God? Doesn't it seem a bit arbitrary and harsh that Jesus would walk up to this tree? It's not even the season for figs. And he looks at it and says, no figs? Pfft, screw you. Well, I don't think he said screw you. But 
you know, forget it. Just you're never no, you're never going to produce figs again. Why? Why would Jesus be upset there were no figs on this tree that shouldn't even have figs? Sounds like a big overreaction. Big overreaction. It seems like. Seems like, of course. It just seems bizarre. Like, right? <laughs> why? Why is it in here? Even if it did happen, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Okay. Let's keep reading. Let's, before we discuss this section further, let's go to the next section where he drives the money changers out of the temple, starting in verse 15. They arrived at Jerusalem. Immediately on entering the temple, Jesus started throwing out everyone who had set up shop there, buying and selling. He kicked over the tables of the bankers and the stalls of the pigeon merchants. He didn't let anyone even carry a basket through the temple. And then he taught them, quoting this text from Isaiah 56, my house was designated a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a hangout for thieves. The high priests and religion scholars heard what was going on and plotted how they might get rid of him. They panicked, for the entire crowd was carried away by his teaching. Verse 19, at evening, Jesus and his disciples left the city. In the morning, walking along the road, they saw the fig tree shriveled to, shriveled to a dry stick. Peter, remembering what had happened the previous day, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is shriveled up. Okay, so familiar story. Jesus going to the temple, throwing over, kicking over the tables. Uh, maybe the temper tantrum was continuing from cursing out the fig tree. Uh, we're not sure. But um, do you have a picture? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I forgot about it. So apparently the commercial activity that, that was going on in the temple was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, uh, in the temple area. And we have a picture of it somewhere. Um, okay, so here's the temple. I don't know if you can all see this. Uh, and then here's the women's courtyard. The court of the Gentiles was this big area all out around the primary temple. The surrounding area. So just picture in that, in that, all that area outside those walls, there were all these booths set up. Uh, the common currency of the day was, was Roman money, but according to Exodus 30, people had to pay their temple tax in shekels. And so there was these currency exchange booths, like you see in the airports, and you could turn in your Roman currency, get shekels, so you could go pay your temple tax. Uh, anybody ever suspicious of those currency exchange booths in airports? Am I getting a good deal? Am I not getting a good deal? I don't know. That's exactly what's going on here. Is uh, they were getting ripped off. They were charging a high exchange rate. That's how they were making money. Lots of money. Pigeons or doves were the recognized offering of the poor. So there were booths also in those outer courts set up to sell pigeons and birds. This the the effect of all this was like a Middle Eastern uh, open air market. There was smells, there was noise, there was chaos, there was uh, corruption, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. But this was a place around the temple, because Gentiles weren't allowed in the inner courtyard. This was a place set up for the Gentiles to come and be close to God's presence, who was, you know, God localized his presence right here in the most holy place. That's basically where God lived. And, and the outer court was a place where the Gentiles who hadn't fully converted to Judaism could come and worship and get close to God, if you will. 
Um, and this had been turned into a, a bizarre, uh, an open air market that was probably full of corruption. If a Gentile did convert to Judaism, were they allowed in? I'm not sure. I was afraid someone would ask me that question. Oh. <laughs> Anybody know? Um, all right, let's throw a different question out. <laughs> um, think about these two stories. We have the fig tree that had no figs on it, lots of green leaves, very lush looking, but no fruit, no figs. And we have the temple that's filled with all of this corruption and uh, it's robbing the Gentiles of a place to get close to God. Why do you think Mark puts these two narratives together? It's it's a symbol. See why the tree represents the temple or the people. Okay. Looks good on the outside, but there's no fruit. Sticker on your chest. And what's going on in the temple? And it looks good on the outside, but there's no fruit. Other ideas, other thoughts? Anyone want to expand on those? And Jesus' reaction is a tantrum on both of them. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. The fig tree was often used as a symbol for Israel. Uh, Jeremiah uses it. Um, and I think uh, Isaiah 34 talks about the destruction of the fig tree as associated with judgment. So I think what Mark's doing here is, or what Jesus was doing, is using the fig tree to pronounce the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. Here's this people. Here's my people. They look good on the outside. There's this external life and greenness, but there's no fruit. So when Jesus curses it, he's pronouncing judgment. It was irrelevant that it wasn't the season for figs. I think it's cool that Mark includes that because it just makes us go, what? We have to think a little harder. Um, so, so get the juxtaposition like that word, of the stories here. The leaves hid the lack of the fruit on the tree. The glory of the temple, the temple buildings, hid the rottenness that was inside. And so the tree is withered to its roots. The next day, it's a dry stick. It's a branch. It's dead. I mean, it says it's withered to its roots. That's dead. And that happened overnight. Jerusalem will be destroyed to its roots. You know when that happened? 40 years after this. 70 AD. And so I think what, what and what Jesus, or, or what the earlier story was about. Jesus had the authority to do all this because he really was the king. Not the king they were expecting because they wanted him to destroy Rome. What he was going to do was judge them because it was all external. Um, they honored God on the outside but not on the inside. Uh, so I was a little not making that connection with the temple but what it is is the temple people that were exchanging money and whatnot good Jews mm -hmm. arguably 
Yeah. Um, they looked good, like on the outside, they were doing the right thing, but their hearts were very evil. People, yes. I, oh, yeah. anyway, which that's okay. Um, you have you have the beauty of the temple. Yeah. The temple was a glorious building. But down behind the walls is all this corruption going on. This place where yeah. Gentiles yeah. were supposed to be able to come and get close to God. Uh, this place that where he, Jesus says it's... Um, uh, it's uh, my house was designated a house of prayer for the nations. This was supposed to be a place for all nations to come and learn about God. And it turned into this corrupt, rotten mm -hmm. system, which reflected the people's hearts. Mm -hmm. um, I went back to Mark 7. I don't know how long ago that was, but anyway, Mark 7, verse 6 says, Jesus answered, Isaiah was right about frauds like you. He hit the bullseye, in fact. And this is the message. These people make a big show of saying the right things, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they are worshiping, worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy, ditching God's command and taking up the latest facts. That's earlier. That's three, four chapters earlier in the book of Mark. Seven uh, what? Seven six. And so, yeah, Jesus is comparing the internal deadness and corruption of Israel. To, to the, the the fraudulent temple system, because this was supposed to be uh, a blessing for all nations. Jesus, God blessed Israel to be a blessing to all nations. Genesis 12. Uh, God told Abraham, "I'm going to bless all the world through you." Israel was given all these blessings: the Messiah, the the Old Testament, the Word of God, so that they could then take it out. But what did they do with it? They hoarded it. They brought it all in. Uh, they corrupted it. Um, there is no way they were doing what God had intended them to do. Um, so, a couple, couple questions here. Are we doing the externals? Or where are we doing the externals? Back to the very beginning question I asked. Where are we faking it? Where are, are we putting on a good show, we're studying our Bible, we're going to church, we're reading, but, but the heart is rotten inside. And the second question is, we as followers of Jesus are blessed to be a blessing. We've received the free gift of grace, we've received forgiveness, we've re received salvation, not to hoard it, but to, to give it out. Israel was, was grossly guilty of that. Are we? Um, questions to ask ourselves. How, how am I hoarding the blessing that I've been giving as opposed to being a blessing to others? Thoughts, comments, anybody want to confess? I just had a thought um, <coughs> that in the Old Testament we do see how God gets jealous and angry and in the New Testament we don't see that as much coming from Jesus. But this is one of those moments in the New Testament where you do see Jesus, like he is a jealous God and he isn't happy when he sees those things. And usually when, you know, as Jesus, he's, you know, we see the kind and compassionate part. And so when you do read how he curses this tree and how he makes a mess in the temple, like 
it is shocking, but it is a reminder that he is part of some, like, he is from God, yeah. so yeah. he's got that in him, too. I love that, because we so often wrongly caricature the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, you know, and um, you do see this wrath, mm-hmm. anger in the New Testament. You see grace and love and forgiveness in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, yeah, it's the same God. Chris, I see, like, maybe this is a bit of a confession, but I I think one thing I do that's similar in that, like, I'm a big proponent of caring for our family as, a, as the church first. And I will wear myself out sometimes trying to meet the needs of the church because I think of Galatians, especially the household of faith. Mm-hmm. But it's weird to do good to everyone, right. especially the especially, household of faith. Right. So, you know, may, maybe there's a, if, if I'm up at an impasse, maybe I'm, you know, care for the, this family um, as, as maybe a priority, but I can hoard the goodness just for I think caring for people in the church and saying well if you want if you want this then you need to just be a part of the church which there's something to that but there's also something that just is supposed to be overflowing and blessing to to those outside as well so balanced with Jesus didn't heal everybody when Jesus went back to heaven there were still sick people in Palestine Mm -hmm. Um, so we can't do it all yeah. But but we have to look and see uh, are we are we using that as an excuse not to do what we should be? Mm-hmm. We we talk about this all the time. Are we are we being selfish with our lives, or are we being smart and 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 taking time to rest? And I pretty sure we get it wrong most of the time, probably both directions. Um, maybe if it's on the scales and it balances, we're fine. I don't know. But it, it is a tension that we need to continually be looking at our lives, trusting the Holy Spirit, reading the Word, and moving on. Um, yeah, I think I see the idea, I would say, of faking it, or maybe it's both, of like, we, are we faking it, or am I hoarding? Am I faking something, or am I hoarding blessing? I think there's like a trend of in church to if you to like be working through something theologically, you know, like if I have questions about God or a doubt, or I'm trying to figure something out, um, and where I fall on an issue or what I think about it. Instead of just, like, I let that whole thing just hold me up. Mm-hmm. And I don't think when I get to heaven, actually, I'm pretty sure scripture tells me that when I get to heaven, God's not going to be, way to figure out that theological discrepancy. <laughs> um, he's going to, yeah, at the expense of not doing my work and not living for me or following me or right. whatever. Right. Um, and so, not that I don't want to think through issues or that people shouldn't do those sure. things, but I think... I can fake it in a sense of like, well, I can't live my, I can't go forward right now 
And it's like, God would call you to life. The disciples didn't have everything. The disciples didn't even know that he was like the Messiah <laughs> right. for like half the book of Mark. Yeah. And there is still, he still expects them to like follow him. Um, so. Yeah, you can still give a cup of cold water to a thirsty person while you're trying to figure out the you know premillennial coming back of Christ or whatever. Yeah, or read and pray and like spend time with yeah. Jesus. You know, just like yeah, things like that. I think I can put off in the name of like, well, I, just, I need to figure this thing out before I can like be good with God again. Sure. And yeah. that's yeah. like the worst way to figure it out anyways. Alright, let's keep cruising. Mike. 8.30, quarter till, something like that. Yeah, quarter till. Quarter till. Um, next section, starting in verse 22, um, reading the message. Jesus was matter-of-fact. Embrace this God life. Really embrace it, and nothing will be too much for you. This mountain, for instance, just say, go jump in the lake. No shuffling or shilly-shallying. It's like, where, does, where did Peterson grow up? <laughs> shilly-shallying? <laughs> anyway, anyway, grew up in Montana. Um, he says we're done. Uh, go jump in the lake. No shuffling or shilly-shallying, and it's as good as done. That's why I urge you to pray for absolutely everything, ranging from small to large. Include everything as you embrace this God life, and you'll get God's everything. And when you assume the posture of prayer, remember that it's not all asking. If you have anything against someone, forgive. Only then will your Heavenly Father be inclined to also wipe your sleep clean of sins. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a ton in this passage that we can't look at. Um, which again is, is we're trying to get the big overview, but uh, it's possible that the mountain that Jesus is talking about here that you could throw into the sea, and, and one commentator said that you can see the Dead Sea from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus might be saying you could take this Mount of Olives that I'm standing on and you could throw it into the Dead Sea if you have enough faith. Um, he. The mountain might be an allusion to Zechariah 14. Uh, Zechariah 14 is, talks about uh, whenever Jesus comes back triumph as the triumphant king. And he says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Um, reference to the coming kingdom. And so I think it's Lane, actually that says that it's possible that what Jesus is talking about here is that if, if you have the right prayer, it's, it's like praying thy kingdom come. If you have the faith and you pray, this mountain, Jesus is going to stand on it and split it in half and his kingdom will come on earth. And so, I know that's convoluted, but it could be what he's saying is, it's a form of praying thy kingdom come this mountain will be cast into the sea. As far as I know, no one in the history of the church has ever prayed a mountain that came up out of the ground and went over to the ocean and dropped into it. And I think there have been some incredible people of faith. Um, the idea is that when his kingdom comes, apathy and hypocrisy will be gone. This deadness, this fakeness, this, this falseness, this all green leaves and no fruit, that will be gone. And so... Uh, our praying is to for God to establish his reign and rule when God's people will indeed be a blessing to the entire world. The deadness will be gone and Jesus will be king. Mm-hmm. Quick thoughts? Keep cranking? All right. 
Uh, the next section, verse 27. Actually, this is the last section. Then when they were back in Jerusalem once again, as they were walking through the temple, the high priests, the religion scholars, the leaders came up and demanded, show us your credentials. Who authorized you to speak and act like this? Jesus responded, first, let me ask you a question. Answer my question, and then I'll present my credentials. About the baptism of John, who authorized it, heaven or humans? Tell me. They were on the spot, and they knew it. They pulled back into a huddle and whispered, if we say heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe John. If we say humans, we'll be up against it with the people, because they all hold John up as a prophet. They decided to concede that round to Jesus. We don't know, they said. Jesus replied, then I won't answer your question either. So the religious leaders of the day were offended by Jesus. They didn't like all that he was doing. He had just killed a fig tree. He had come into the temple and kicked over all their corrupt uh, prophet, profiteering. Um, he's, he's teaching, he's talking, he's, he has this kind of authority, and that's what we talked about earlier, that here, here he's demonstrating his authority. Um, and so they wanted to know, where do you get the authority to act like this and to do this? Now, any ideas how this narrative would fit in and tie back with the rest of the narratives that we've seen through chapter 11? It comes down to, again, they misunderstood who Jesus was, and they thought he was supposed to be this person who would come and overthrow the existing order, and they had a certain conception of who he was, and he's revealed himself in all these instances that he is somebody completely different. Yeah, he ulti with ultimate authority. All the way back to the triumphal entry where they misunderstood who he was. And, and, and he kind of like, here's my authority, and they completely rejected it. Thoughts? Other thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. They're just completely blinded by their own faith that they've built up in their heads, that they can't see past what he's not false understand the, the, they, they were looking for a certain kind of messiah he wasn't that messiah yeah. uh, another thing i just kind of thought of is that it's costly to have to completely change your worldview and your pers perspective and your tradition now that this person has come in and basically told you that what you believed all this time is kind of yeah. a fraud and you need to change if you are going to like serve god in the, in the way that he is to be served. That's an yeah. excellent point. That wasn't really in my notes, or isn't, but just, I mean, once Jesus is introduced to somebody, they have to deal with him. Mm -hmm. It's either accept or reject. Mm -hmm. Austin, you were thinking? Yeah, just thinking about that, I was like, man, because in their minds, like, Messiah means they're going to be back in charge. They get the world at their fingertips as far as Jerusalem and Israel goes. And now Jesus is saying, Actually, I came so that we could all serve everybody. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder if they understood what he was doing with the fig tree and the temple better than we do. And they're like, no, you were supposed to come and make this great, make Jerusalem great again. Sorry. <laughs> but um, but you're, you're talking about destroying it. Because somewhere in his teaching, he says, you know, in three days, I'm going I'm to tear this down and destroy this temple. In three days, I'll rebuild it. And so they're already suspicious he's planning on destroying the temple. And now he goes in and he kicks over all their corruption. And maybe they're like, 
who is this guy that's doing this? And he, it's part of his authority to do this that he's talking about. Now, this is where I step into chapter 12 a little bit. Um, chapter, the first 12, ver <laughs> the first 12 verses of chapter 12 is the story of the, of the uh, vine owner that sends these servants to the vine and they kill him and they kill him and then he sends his son, surely they won't kill him, and they kill the son. And Austin will explain that in more detail next week. But I, I think what he's saying is, um, I, as your Messiah, as the one with supreme authority to bring judgment and to do all this, need to be killed. I will die. Um, the disciples just were not getting this over and over. Because you've been studying Mark, he tells them, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna die, and in three days I'm gonna rise." And they talked among themselves, "What does it? What does he mean by that?" It just, it, it did not fit their understanding of who Jesus was, so they could not. It, it, there was just a mental block. And so now he tells them this parable that I'm going to die, and I don't think they still got it yet, but. Anyway, so I think I think that first section of chapter 12 uh, kind of finishes this flow of Jesus is king, he's Messiah. He demonstrates that Israel is dead, there is no fruit, they're not fulfilling their mission, and that Jerusalem will be destroyed because it's rotten inside. Um, there's this all these right motions, uh, uh, external motions going on. There's no heart, there's no genuineness. Is, Israel was blessed to be a blessing, but they failed. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Son of God. And he will set everything right, but he will do it by dying. And it takes you back to Isaiah. I mean, all of this was foretold in Isaiah, but they missed that too. They didn't get that the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 was the Messiah. Um, and so... Um, we need to get to know the Jesus that is, not the Jesus we want to be. He was completely misunderstood by the people he presented himself to. I got a couple final questions to talk about. But any thoughts as we kind of pull this together? Observations? I just wonder how likely we would be given a choice of a president if he were seemingly just so laid back and honest honest um, just like no mm. you know no power no seemingly power you want a commander in chief yeah and, and Jesus didn't come across as commander in chief but we probably wouldn't have been impressed and wanted him as our president. So I just kind of like... Isaiah 53 says he had no form that we would be attracted to him. Yeah. I think if we met Jesus, we would not be impressed because we judge so quickly on externals. Mm -hmm. um, I grew in stature and God and man. I mean, that... There's as a boy. As a boy, okay. As a boy. I've thought about this a lot. I've thought if I met Jesus in the flesh, 
I don't think I would like him initially. Or would I like him wow, initially? I don't know. Sassy Jesus. What? I'm worried about calling him Sassy Jesus. Sassy Jesus. He's <laughs> being like. I mean, would he even appear homeless? Woman. See what I tell you, dude. You know, yeah. Well, would he well, even he appear was totally homeless. homeless. Yeah, would he, you know, it's like, would he be on the train sleeping on, uh, you know? Yep. I, I think we have built a Jesus in our minds and our hearts, and I don't know that it's all wrong, that we are in love with. Um, and I think it's imperative that we keep getting to know him as he really is. And that's limited because we can't physically see him. And I think we as a culture, we as a people, as human beings, we base so much on physical appearance as to whether we will like somebody or not like somebody, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we are all guilty of it. Um, tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white, male, female, um, ugly, handsome, I don't know. It's, it's based on physical appearance. I have a hunch Jesus was really holy looking and, and probably not very attractive. I mean, based on Isaiah 53, I don't know anything in the It's one of my favorite passages to, to, to bring up with, with people and, and talk about, um, especially, you know, because you said, like you said, you have this, this aura, you have pictures that have been made of this man for 2,000, 3,000 years and, you know, six foot, you're like, you know, you even look up, how tall was you? It says six foot. Like, how do you know? Like, <laughs> like, really handsome, really handsome and rugged and you know, beautifully grown in beard. Yeah, like the dude. White. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's just it, just, it just blows my mind that one of the favorite passages I shared with uh, Jessica when we were first was, was that. Because it really helps humble. Yeah. It, it really helps humble and take you out of the objectivity of what people do. Yeah. So let, let, let's throw this out to talk about. How can we be sure that we know the real Jesus and not the Jesus we want? What can we do? What steps can we take? How can you, yeah. Read the Gospels a lot, especially Mark. And read them with other people who don't think like you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that, because just being in the South, like this past week, in anywhere, it doesn't matter. LA, South, whatever. It's just, if you read something like mine, y'all are going to come up with the same thing. Yeah, it does mean that. And so I think it's important to mm -hmm. have diversity and how people think and stuff to help you better process what it says. That's good. That's good fun. What else? I think being honest in your prayers, in your communication with the Lord, um, I think this is something that I'm constantly praying about, is just like in areas where I feel hardened in my own thought process, my own belief process, to let that be broken down, to know the truth. Because just like, um, just like the Jews, just like the religious leaders, like there are areas of our lives that we have built up this like, belief system, and if we don't ask for that to be revealed to us, if we aren't like humbly asking for help, then we're never going to get it. And there's always an area that you should be looking into. So I just think like 
prayer, like active prayer. Have, have you ever read a passage of scripture and just went, I don't get that, and kept going? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what the disciples did when Jesus talked about, you know, I, I must die and rise again. They didn't get it, so they kept going. I think we need to make sure we stop on those passages that we don't get and, and try to see if there's holes in our understanding that that passage will expose. I think, uh, like I see a lot of, well, in my tendency is to be like, I'm sorry, I'm about this today. Like, I'm fine, I don't have any issues, I don't have any sin or problems, but being, that's, that's why community is so important and being in a body of believers and being committed and invested because if you're not, then you don't have those people who are able to point out those, to challenge those wrong beliefs about Jesus. I can specifically think of like political beliefs that I've had that have been pushed back on about like what does the gospel say about that or that that place of priority in your life or how you spend your time or how that affects your mood or um, and I think um, you know a lot of people you hear all the time like well I'm a Christian but I like worship I don't go to church or I, I love Jesus but I'm not an organized religion um, because everyone in organized religion is a hypocrite which is true um, of course, and so are you. So, um, but uh, I think a lot of times it boils down to, uh, and then you have to be willing to receive that correction when your community gives it to you, which is not fun to be told. Um, but you know, it's like there's so many verses in scripture that say that iron sharpens iron. Yeah. Um, that the Lord uses the, the Lord doesn't just like speak to us in a in a orb in our room in our prayer closet like he he chooses to use his people to refine us and sanctify us. So yeah. I don't see I don't think it's in any way possible to get anywhere near that without being consistently involved in a community of believers. Agreed. We can't live the Christian life fully alone. I think um, I think obeying Christ necessarily means that you're going to suffer. I think sharing in the sufferings of Christ helps you to get to know him a little bit yeah. personally. Yeah. Um, not that we'll ever be able to experience the full level of his suffering, but I think in like in relationship to the book of Mark, like it, the book is largely about his suffering, also, um, and in a way that is due to his obedience to God and his love for people. Yeah. And I think if, if we take what we know in our heads and we actually do something about that, and we live through what it must have been or what it is like to be like Jesus. I think in a personal way we get to know him because dang Jesus, how do you have so much patience? <laughs> I think it's excellent. Yeah. Not that we can bring on suffering or go stand in front of a truck or something, yeah. but yeah. But um, 
put ourselves out there to mm -hmm. suffer. Yeah, to obey. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna suffer if you obey. It's yeah. just, the gospel is just. Anti and there's all kinds of ways yeah. of suffering. Yeah. Uh, it may not be persecution or, or, yeah. or being beaten, but there may be. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah, just on that point too. I think just stepping out in faith in anything, you'll get to know Jesus better. I mean, I think of like serve someone, and you'll get to know Jesus better. Um, you know, give money to someone who needs it, and you'll get to know Jesus better. I think, um, which I think is like a form, and all those things you kind of there's the potential to experience suffering. But I also think part of getting to know Jesus better is like just looking for him. Mm -hmm. I remember it was a while ago I was here and then someone was like, I think it was on a Sunday, and I said something along the lines of like, I just need to thank God because he answered like 90% of the things I was praying for over the last year and I didn't realize it. Like I just was praying like, oh, I pray that, you know, Maddie and I's engagement goes well. I pray we get, you know, our marriage or if the wedding goes well, I pray we find a house I pray, or an apartment. I pray that we find a church and blah, uh, just a million asks. And then, like a year later, I was at this church. We had an apartment down the street. Marriage was great. Like, and I'm like, wait a minute. How come I never like realized that Jesus was like, like, and that's all. That's all on me. Like, yeah. Like, he forgot to remind me. It was like all in front of me the whole time. I was just not looking for him. So mm -hmm. good. Other thoughts? I don't think this is always the case, but I get suspicious that that I am understanding Jesus or God properly if in following him I am in the majority of the culture. Wow. Yeah. So if I'm going along with the grain of society then I don't know necessarily that that means I'm thinking the wrong things about God or my, my faith and following Him, but I'm pretty suspicious of it. So it's something to evaluate anyway. Because, I mean, Jesus is so... I mean, everything is countercultural. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, I mean, especially in Mark, he's pulling out a lot of, hey, greatness is serving. And that's just that's not, I mean, James and John have reasonable, they're asking for something reasonable, and they're asking to sit at his right hand and left hand, I don't think, I mean, that's seems like something that they should want they want to reign with Jesus and because they, of what they anticipated he was going to do yeah, um, but they're thinking just like everybody else naturally thinks, yeah. as yeah. far as authority and power, and, and it's like that should have, that, that could be a clue to me, it's like, oh yeah, that's what everybody else around me wants, that might not be what Jesus wants yeah, I've noticed recently, like, the things that my non-believing friends or my believing friends who I think have wrong theology, their theology almost always lines up in a way that the culture would make you suffer if you didn't believe mm -hmm. in, in that thing that you're having a hard time believing. You know, like I was saying, like, it's not like you have a hard time with, like, uh, you know, some some teaching about like know, something that's not controversial. You have you have a hard time. You like your belief is putting you in a place that aligns 
with the culture um, and and you not having that belief would mean that you would have some sort of suffering from whatever and that could be like family culture or sure. or friend culture or political work culture um, or like American culture at large but I just was noticing it's like the things that you have you have a hard time with it aren't the teachings that our culture agrees with like yeah be nice and and rest I mean our culture does have a time, hard time with rest but it's like nobody's ever like not believing in God because he says like you should rest it's like it's like with Jesus when he healed the guy on the Sabbath day he he looked around at the Pharisees yeah. said watch this and he healed it because you weren't supposed to do that on the Sabbath day. Yeah, and, and it's like, no, we're going to obey things that fly in the face of culture. Yeah, because it's the right thing to do, not, not just to be controversial. Yeah, cool. We're out of time. All right, done. Good. Can we pray? Jesus, thank you for this time. Lord, help us to know you better, help us to learn to know who you really are. Show us where we are worshiping a Jesus that we want to worship as opposed to the Jesus who he is. I know we will never know you perfectly, the sight of heaven, but may we grow and learn and gain and may we be genuine, heartfelt followers of you. Root out any rottenness or fakeness or hypocrisy in us. In your name, amen. Amen.